You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. We'll be reading from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Uh, If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's word, that would be awesome. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out in a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now, there was a great herd of pigs feeding there on the hillside. And he begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and the country, and people came to see what happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And then they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done to you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus has done to him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. Um, and we are going to jump uh, in quickly. We've got about 20 verses to get through, lots of work to do. As Luke said, we're, we're work, making our way through the book of Mark. And uh, I'm hoping that we can uh, really cover as much as possible in these 20 verses in the little time that we have together. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have been given, that you've bestowed upon us to sing together in worship and in adoration of the great gospel news that you've given us, the truth that, Lord Jesus, you reign both in heaven and on earth, that all authority has been given to you, that you've bestowed upon us the great gift of being called children of God. We thank you that we get to submit to your word this morning and that your word is truth. We ask, my God, that you would meet our needs, the ones that we know of and the ones we don't even know of. God, thank you that you know us more intricately than we could know ourselves, that you know us together as a church body and you know us individually, our families, our children. And so we do ask that you would minister to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit through the truth of your word. And that, my God, we might receive your word, that it might be implanted in our hearts to produce a 30, 60, 100-fold harvest to your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' good name. 
Amen. Amen. Okay, so again here, our passage is coming on the heels of Ty speaking last week about a very famous story, uh, a very well-known story of Jesus on the sea with his disciples, a storm arising, and Jesus calming the Sea of Galilee, his authority being exerted over creation in this way that the disciples were marveled. Who, what kind of man is this that he speaks to the waves and they obey him? And if you don't know the, the, that story of Jesus on the boats, it's, uh, it's kind of like the feeding of the thousands. Uh, there, there are more than, Jesus does this more than once, incidentally. All the synoptics give us examples, but their details seem to be a little bit different, and it gives us this indication that Jesus perhaps uh, didn't merely walk on water once or calm the seas once, because uh, if you remember, Jesus is in the boat and Peter walks on the water towards uh, Jesus at one point. Uh, another time he shows up on his own and they say it's a ghost and Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's I and he calms the seas. This record in Mark is not him walking on the water, but him waking up from the stern and just speaking to the water and speaking to the waves and calming them. And so we're following up on Jesus' authority over creation into a familiar theme for us, hopefully, hopefully which is Jesus' authority over the supernatural, the demonic in particular. And this story is a little bit, uh, maybe, maybe even more amazing than the story that we heard in chapters one or two where the man with the unclean spirit shows up at the synagogue. And the reason is, uh, this is another famous story of demonic possession, that Jesus shows up on an island of the Gerasenes and a man comes out from the tombs whom not only has been uh, possessed by an unclean spirit, but who Jesus asked, what's your name? And he responds, legion, for we are many. Meaning that this man's not just possessed by a demon, but he's possessed by thousands of demons. Legion being the word the Roman armies used to describe their big soldier units. Okay, there's a lot of different discrepancies about how many this may be. We know at least 2,000. There's 2,000 pigs who run over the sea when the this demons, these demons are cast out. Now, as a reminder, we've covered this a lot in the book of Mark, and we should take note as Christians, as Ephesians 6 tells us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It seems like that should be a theme we're picking up on through Mark. There's a supernatural element to Jesus' ministry because we live in a world that's not only animated by the physical. Now, why, the question I want to ask before we jump in, is the conversation around demons so taboo? Like, why is it that whenever we start to read this text, immediately we were thinking, I hope he rushes to the symbolic meaning of this. Right? Oh, that's, that's typically the way that we feel. It's like, let's get beyond uh, the, the whole demon thing. Let's talk about how it really symbolizes something else. And I would pose that maybe there's two reasons for that. One is that Hollywood's done a great job of sensationalizing the demonic in a manner that makes us feel uh, pretty uncomfortable with it. Whether it be, if you're, if you're a little bit older, maybe it's just The Exorcist. Okay, that's a famous one. Or a little bit younger than that, maybe it's The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Or if you're a little bit younger than that, I'm sorry, I don't watch TV anymore. And so I don't know what it may be for you. But they, these horror movies have come out pretty constantly. And it shows the nature of the demonic in a specific way. But I would say the other reason is that in our highly rational, secularist culture, we just don't want to be seen as anti-intellectuals by our peers. Uh, you know, this idea of demonization that we see here clearly in the scriptures has to be relegated to a sideshow of mystical ancient times that we currently don't live in. Now, the reason that this is important for us to discuss is I did a lot of, uh, I did a lot of reading. I read a, a, a ton about 
the church history of demonology and church history of how has the church from the time of Jesus' resurrection up until now, do we have evidence that this has basically gone away? And I want to read to you, this is not going to be behind me, so you're going to have to perk your ears up. I want to read to you, this is kind of a summation after about 60 pages of church history that I read, and this is kind of the last two paragraphs of the ending of this section of the book that I was reading. And it says this, Early Christian references to the demonic can be found in the writings of Justin Martyr, Theophilus of Antioch, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Origen, Athanasius, and many other early church fathers. Not only is spiritual warfare documented constantly through the whole time period of the ancient church, but spiritual warfare is also seen during the Middle Ages, the Reformation, and the early post-Reformation. Exorcism practices seem to diminish in the Middle Ages, but there are still references among the Germanic tribes, the Norwegians, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, Martin Luther, the Catholic Church's own records, and other sources. The existence and activity of the devil and demons are widely evidenced and commonly believed across the history of the church until the post-enlightenment era, close quote. Now that last few words should perk your ears up. The post-enlightenment era. Well, when is that? Friends, that's you. That's me. And just like a fish that lives in the water doesn't know he's wet, you and I don't know that we are post-enlightenment rationalists. Now, of course, we're Christians, so we're battling upstream, but yet it's the very water that we swim in, which is why when we talk about demons, unlike the majority of church history, we kind of go, huh, that's not really true. That's more like, like, it's no different than Shrek 2 to us, you know? Just fantasy, you know, magic and things like that. Most of our brothers and sisters for 1,700 years, let's say, 1,600 years, uh, did not agree. And then our brothers and sisters in our ancient patriarchs did not agree with us. It's just only a few, a few centuries, or not even a few centuries, where we've started to rationalize away the spiritual in this, in this way. Paul Hebert was a Mennonite missionary to India. He was born during the time when the British Empire was ruling over India. He moved back to, uh, to England and then returned to India as a Mennonite missionary. And he ran into a problem on the mission field. He was a man who trained pastors. He trained uh, other ministers to go out into the mountains. And one day as he was teaching, a local pastor had traveled hours from the mountains and showed up to one of his lectures. He could tell as the man was standing in the door, he looked weary. And so he sent his other students away and gave them some work to be doing. He called the local pastor in and asked him, why have you journeyed so far? Why are you weary? And the local pastor looks at him and says, the village that I'm living in has contracted smallpox. The Western doctors could not quell the outbreak despite their best efforts. So the village elders called in sorcerers and diviners of their current local gods and asked these sorcerers and these diviners, these local priests of the pagan gods, what should we do? And they responded that the goddess of the village requires a sacrifice of a water buffalo in order for the outbreak to be quelled. So immediately the village elders began going from door to door requiring taxes from the village saying we need to buy uh, the water buffalo for the sacrifice. Now the local pastor told his members of his church, do not give money to the idol sacrifice. And so immediately the Christians were attacked, they were persecuted, they were marginalized, they were outcasted. 
And for all of this, he's not coming now to the missionary, to the Western missionary, to tell him his sob story. No, he's come because he said that one of the families in his congregation, their daughter, had come, fallen sick with smallpox. And he was asking him to pray for healing. Now, when you're reading this, the man Paul Hebert says, at this moment, his heart sinks, his gut tightens up, and he feels woefully unqualified for his missionary position. Because he's a good theologian. He's a man who studied the word. He's a Western man after all, okay? And so he's, he's good at the things that Western preachers are good at. But this is something altogether different. Now he's supposed to step in and pray and believe that this child's going to be healed. And it led him to write a letter that's widely circulated back to his fellow Western Christian missionaries And to write a letter that said, we have a problem on the mission field, he called it the excluded middle. So when the Indian village sorcerers and diviners looked at the world, they see it entirely animistic, entirely spiritual. But when Western doctors looked at the world, they saw the world as an entirely mechanized physical system. You turn a screw here, you tighten a a wrench over here, and that's basically the human body, right? Right? And they couldn't be more diametrically opposed. If the Indian villagers saw a tree fall to the ground, they would say something like, the goddess must desire that the tree kiss the earth. If the Westerner saw a tree fall to the ground, they would say, that's gravity. And that's what happens. But the excluded middle in Paul's view was the Christian worldview that needed to be recovered by these Westerners, that they needed to see the Christian worldview said that both of those were wrong that any singular understanding of just the world being spiritual or just the world being physical was not the Christian worldview, but that a Christian worldview took into account a transcendent God who rules and reigns over all creation, that there's a spiritual and a physical realm, both in bondage and rebellion against the Most High God, and that God's response to that was to send his Son, God made flesh, the hypostatic union, the physical and the spiritual in one, to redeem and restore that, that world that is both spiritual and physical that's in bondage. That's the Christian worldview. Now, Paul doesn't make the case explicitly, but he does allude to the hypostatic union with these worldview clashes. And what we see here in the book of Mark is that Jesus has many interactions. In fact, he has three in this very chapter, five, where the mechanized secular view of the world collides with reality. For instance, how would we explain a man who's so strong that you can chain him down and he bursts the chains, who lives in the tombs naked? <laughs> well, we would say well, that's just not true. But I guarantee you that the men who lived in Ges- the, the Gesserine area would have said, I don't care if you think it's true, he's broken all my chains. Or the woman with the issue of blood, which we'll get to hopefully next week, who had an issue of blood that she went to all the doctors for 12 years and nobody could heal her. And then she just touched the hem of Jesus' garment and all of a sudden it's fixed. How about Jairus' daughter, which we'll get to hopefully next week, who actually dies and then Jesus shows up and says, don't worry, she's just sleeping. There's moments where the best response is to mitigate suffering in the physical amount to failure and then there's something else that happens. So how should the Christian respond in these instances? Well, we say that God is sovereign. Yes, this is true. But also, how does the Christian answer the question as to why the sorcerers in this Indian village actually 
saw healing happen through their sacrificial acts to pagan gods. What does the Christian say to this? Because they weren't 100% effective, but clearly they were effective enough to get paid for this often. That sometimes their bloodletting led to the disease going away. Well, what do we do with this? Well, what I would say is we need a revival of the true Christian worldview, which includes a spiritual realm alongside a physical realm. Now, I want to make mention of how this book ends its last paragraph. Listen to this. The great emphasis of early church writings is not on the power and the responsibility of a priest or a church leader, but on the power of Christ and the responsibility of the believer in relation to the demonic, close quote. I thought that was good. That when you look through all the early church writings, you don't see that, oh, we need a priest, we need an exorcist, we need a really good pastor who's really holy to fix this. It says, no, we need Christ And the Christian needs to understand their responsibility to avoid darkness and sin that would entangle them. That's it. So there's a few things I want to focus on, and hopefully we can get through them. We'll see how far we can get into it today. I've got plenty of notes. Number one, the nature of the demonic. What does this text tell us about the nature of the demonic? Number two, what does this text tell us about how we should combat the demonic, particularly the futility of combating the demonic with the flesh? And then number three, and maybe my, the, my favorite part, I hope I get enough time, the dominion of Christ over the demonic that's manifested here and all throughout the Gospels. So let's start with this. What does this text tell us about the nature of the demonic? Let's start with chapter number five, verses one through six. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. You've got to be thinking how crazy it is to do ministry with Jesus Jesus has just woken up in the middle of a storm, talked to the water. The water obeyed him. They show up at the island. They're freaking out, okay? What just happened to us? All of a sudden, a guy comes naked out of the cemetery and runs toward Jesus in a demonic voice, crying out. A day in the life of the disciples' ministry, right? Verse 3, he lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was also crying and cutting himself with stones. So what do we see here? Well, number one, we see the man makes his dwelling place among the dead. Something about the demonic and the nature of the demonic is an obsession with death. Or if we want to say it in the inverse, maybe it's a degradation of life. A lack of care about dignity and value of human life. You can see in the demonic. Number two, he doesn't wear clothes. The man runs around without his clothes on. So an outright uh, lack of shame. There's no shame and also all boundaries are cast off, right? even the societal boundaries of something like clothing yourself, which actually started in the garden, okay? The first clothes were made in the garden directly after sin by fig leaves. So clothes have been around for a while, all right? If you ever wonder why you think it's a good idea for people to clothe themselves, it's been around for a good amount of time. It says no one can bind him anymore, not even with the chains. He's uncontainable, crying out and cutting himself. So he's clearly in pain, he's clearly suffering, and yet he continues to self-mutilate. There's something about the demonic that has you to continue to do things that you know hurts you, everybody around you knows hurts you, and you can't stop doing the thing that hurts you. 
Now, we could spend some time maybe working through some cultural examples. I wish I had more time, but I have, we have so much to get through. But maybe even today, as you look through the text, think of some of those cultural examples where maybe you see this even in the 21st century. Yes, even in a post-Enlightenment era where, where there's no shame, where boundaries have been broken apart, where we continue to be adamant to do the very things that hurt us the most and hurt people around us. That obsession with death, a devaluing of life. Maybe you can see some of these themes even in our own culture today. But I want to go to some other scriptures. What else does the Bible tell us that the demonic is about? Well, you're going to find it in some areas that maybe you've heard only half of the scripture. So let's go to Ephesians 4. And I want to read 26 and 27. Listen to what Paul says. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, if it stops there, that totally is a very reasonable, it's a, it's a marriage text, all right? This makes sense. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't be angry with one another. Seems very moral, very astute, very virtuous. If it just stopped there. But watch what Paul says next. Now he's going to take you into your charismatic grandma's living room. Give no opportunity to the devil. He has now attached your anger in your house to giving opportunity for Satan to step in, which you and me both know we don't talk about very much. Right? Am I, am I wrong about this? When you had counseling and you were talking about the anger argument that you had with your spouse, do you ever talk about potentially the devil being involved? Probably not, because you're like, well, I'm not crazy. Well, Paul's not either. But he seems to think that the devil's interested in enticing you in your anger to sin against God, which the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Okay. It's not the only one, though. Let's go to the elder scripture. This is one of the 1 Timothy chapter 3 qualifications of an elder. Watch this. The elder that you choose must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, hold on. Let's pause. Let's do the first half. He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit. That totally makes sense, even in a rational sense. You don't want to have a pastor who hasn't been a Christian for very long. Why? Because you need him to get beat up enough to know that he's actually not that big of a deal. You need him to realize how much of a failure he is, how much of a great savior he has, so that when he stands up and talks to you about the Bible, there's at least a shred of self-understanding and humility. This is totally rational. But then Paul takes it into the supernatural immediately and says what? If he's puffed up with conceit, he'll fall into the condemnation of the devil. Why add that? Well, he doesn't stop there. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he might not fall into disgrace. Well, that makes sense. You would also want your pastors to be well thought of, at least for the right reasons, for the people in the outside community. Why? So that you might be able to invite your neighbor and not feel like, oh, man, but they're going to meet my pastor. Guy sucks, you know? <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. There's kids in there. The guy stinks. I hate that guy. But watch this. Why would he fall into disgrace? He would also fall into a snare of the devil. Why add that? Because Paul's understanding is not that our Christian life is mostly rationalistic, counsel type behavior where we can have moral change through cognitive behavioral therapy. He believes there's a spiritual realm actively at work looking to destroy and devour you. You cannot avoid it. Okay, that's not the only ones. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. This one I see all the time. It's probably in my house, okay? Somewhere my wife has it hanging up. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. What a wonderful passage. 
We do not finish that verse in the mantelpiece, though. You know why? You don't want the devil being talked about in your artwork at your house. Watch this. Be sober-minded and be watchful. What should you be watchful about? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's the other half of a very wonderful verse about God caring for us so much so that he cares for our minute anxieties. The other half of that is that he, Paul t- or Peter tells us we should also be watchful because there's another entity, an evil force, that wants to eat you. That's like, I don't know, Jack and the Beanstalk type stuff. This is fairy tale type stuff. There's an entity that wants to eat, devour you. That's what the Bible says. That you should be watchful. There's an adversary. He's pretty bad. Watch it. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So just in case you were wondering, he's not just talking to the Jews in the diaspora. He's saying, well, if you're a Christian all the way across the world, yeah, he's around. John 10, verse 10, Jesus speaking of Satan as the thief. And he says, here's what Satan's ploy is. The thief has come to what? Steal, kill, destroy. That's his aim. Jesus says, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So think about this. Satan's aim, death, death, death. Jesus' aim, life, 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 abundant life. John chapter 8, verse 44. Of course, Jesus with the Pharisees, what does he say to them? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus tells the Pharisees that Satan is a liar. He's been lying since the beginning, and he's a murderer, killer. He's been a killer since the beginning. Now, what do we do with this? Well, we need to be able to diagnose demonic activity. So let's put on our biblical lens here and think, when we think about the way in which our lives are playing out, maybe we should survey the landscape and say, what is actually motivating this? Demonic activity seeks to subjugate you by supplanting your allegiance to God and turning you toward allegiance to idols. Jesus told a parable where he said that even when he sweeps the house clean, if that house remains empty, seven more demons will come back to that house more evil than the first. And the state of that house will be worse in the latter than in the former. What is he saying? He's saying that even if you were to bind the strong man, unless through conversion, the Holy Spirit comes and inhabits this new temple not made with hands, that the enemy and all of his minions will come back and find a great place to live again. And this is the aim of the demonic, which is to turn you away from God and towards idols. Through deceit, the demonic sinks to tempt you to sin, which once again leads to death. Through the encouragement of temptation, the demonic seeks to tell you that you should cast off all boundaries. You could be free if you just casted off these boundaries that are put on you by society, by traditions, by norms, by God, by the Bible, by the religious zealots, by your parents by your spouse, by your mom, by your dad. They just want more rules for you. Cast off those boundaries and then you'll really be free. Now remember, that's the exact same words given to Eve in the garden when the serpent says, if you are just to cast this one boundary off and decide to eat of this tree, you'll be like God more free than anyone. Instead, they eat of the tree and they're more bound than ever before. And so what? The result of it is nakedness, which of course we see here in this passage. The demonic manifests itself in self-harm, 
cutting with rocks, crying all, all the day long. When I was a student ministry pastor, it was a phenomenon to me. I didn't know this was a real thing. Uh, and all of a sudden, we started doing counseling with young girls. This was 15 years ago, who cut themselves. I didn't know what to do about it. Uh, at the time, these young girls would wear uh, long sleeves, and it'd be summer. And you guys know me, like, I don't wear long sleeves ever because I'm sweating constantly. So I'm thinking, what are these girls doing? But, you know, they're more trendy than me. I didn't think much about it. Well, they were covering up their cuts on their wrists. And these girls were talking to each other, and they began to cut more and more and more and more. And I didn't know what to do with this because I thought, well, this is not typically how I deal with feelings. And it wasn't until later on that doing study and finding out that this was not just a you know, unique phenomenon to our student ministry, but that it was a common phenomenon all the way across the Western world and beyond that. And then you get into ancient cultures and you realize that every time you ever see demonic activity, there's always cutting all the way back to Elijah and his showdown with the prophets of Baal. Whenever they do not respond, when Baal doesn't respond to the prophets, what do they do? They cut themselves. Because the demons require a bloodletting sacrifice. They require sacrifice to respond. And whether we know that or not, or our teenage girls at that time knew that, doesn't matter at all because deception's the key. And they would cut themselves. And then, of course, when you start getting into counseling with these girls, there was a lot of sexual abuse. There was a lot of terrible things that they had experienced. They would hear voices, and they'd be suicidal. Almost to a, to a fault, they would be suicidal. The cutting always led to voices that would tell them to harm themselves and end their life. This characterization of the demonic with a theme of death, a sacrificial element, you give what you get, is in direct opposition to the gospel. Think of the gospel in reverse of this demonic lie. Christ, instead of binding us in slavery, frees us from our bonds and reconciles us to God the Father by faith. Jesus redefines, reframes, reveals to us the boundaries that God has laid out as protective boundaries, not as boundaries meant to restrain us from joy. And then finally, and most importantly, the Christian faith is completely and utterly focused on Christ's death, sacrifice, and shed blood on our behalf. The only religion in the world that says our God bled for us, not that we shed blood for our God, is the Christian religion. Jesus came down and said, I'll be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'll take my, the nails in my wrists, not I'm requiring you to shed blood on yours. Now, what do we do with this knowledge? Because it is dark. I will tell you, the more that you get into this, you realize that there are some very dark happenings in the world. They tend to happen in the Western world behind the scenes because people don't want to be seen as crazy. But maybe you have a family member that tells you that someone of their family members or a loved one has been appearing to them in their dreams and it's been very vivid and, and you just think, well, that's just, you know, let's get you some counseling. Here's what I'll tell you is that the Bible itself speaks about this over, overtly often that there are apparitions in dreams, speaking things, and usually showing up as someone who's trustworthy to give you words. But what do we do with this knowledge? Well, let's read verses three through five one more time. Let's figure out what we ought not do. The scripture says that he lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So night and day among the tombs and the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The demon-possessed man could not be restrained from destruction by earthly means. In other words, 
we ought not be ignorant enough that we can use earthly weapons to fight spiritual battles. Remember what Paul says to us in Ephesians 6. Brothers, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, authorities in the heavenly places. It's important to note that one reason that I don't want you as a Christian to ignore the reality of the spiritual is because by ignoring the reality of the spiritual, you are on a fast track to trying to deal with spiritual maladies through earthly means because you have already surrendered any ability to use spiritual ones by saying that it doesn't exist. And here we see that all that led to was this poor man crying out day and night, cutting himself because their earthly chains couldn't bind him anymore. If we don't have categories for spiritual issues as Christians, we will inevitably default to trying to tackle every single spiritual issue we face or issue at all by our own will and our own power, our own wisdom. But remember, following the pattern of the flesh can definitely get you entangled in the demonic, but it cannot get you out. Paul says to the Galatians, if you begun by the spirit, why are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Or how about this? In Egypt, they had to, they had to be brought out of Egypt by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They knew how they got into slavery, and that was their own doing, but they couldn't get out apart from God's help. And Paul's telling the Galatians, so don't think that you're going to be able to fight this spiritual battle by your flesh, by works of the flesh. Friends, if you're, if you're here now, you need to see that maybe you have addictions that currently seek to dominate you. Currently, you know that they are bad. You know that they harm you. You know that they constantly degrade you internally, but you can't seem to overcome them. And I will say that oftentimes in our secularized culture, we think that the means of the flesh is the way that we're going to get over this. And that is not true. It is going to be by the mighty hand and the outstretched arm of Christ. I'm not saying that there are no physical things that you can do. Like, for instance, an accountability partner is great. You know, that's really good. Accountability partner cannot stop the indulgences of the flesh. Because your accountability partner, guess what, has flesh like you. What we need is Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. Oh man, I wish I had more time. Let's go. See to it that no one takes you captive. There's the language. Enslaves you. How? By philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition. Watch this. According to the elemental spirits of the world. Oh wait. Human tradition, man-made religion, self-salvation techniques are demonic? Apparently. Let's keep going. Not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. Paul's saying, when you see Christ, you see the fullness of God, the most high God. Any other deity that tries to dissuade you away from Christ is a demon, a false God. Do not listen. Do not hear. Stop your ears up. If you see Christ, you have the fullness of God. You don't need Christ and this, Christ and New Age Spiritism, Christ and you fill in the blank. No, if you see Christ, you have the fullness, and everything else is demonic. Now watch this. He's going to go on, verse 15. He, being Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities. This is not Nero. This is not Caesar. This is not Trajan. This is not, no, this is the rulers and authorities that you and I probably don't know their names have an ancient demonic name. <laughs> he disarmed them. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
Now watch this. This is where this turn's going to happen. And you're going to be like, how are these two things connected? And I wanted to read all of it because I want you to see, I didn't make this up. It goes from verse 15 to 16. Clearly these are connected. How do I know that? Because the first word in 16 is therefore. If you've been here for long enough, what do I say? When you see therefore, you should ask, what is it there for? It's there to tell you that what I just said, I'm going to give you the conclusion of. I'm going to tell you why I just said it. Well, why did Paul just talk about the demonic? Here's why. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in the questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. That's religious jargon, isn't it? He keeps going, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. This is harsh treatment of the body in the hopes that spiritual good would come from it. Worship of angels. Paul says in Galatians, if an angel comes to you and preaches to you another gospel than the one I brought you, let that angel be accursed. That's harsh, Paul. No, it's not. They're already accursed. They're demonic. He says, let them be accursed. Going on in details about what? About visions? You mean dreams? Yeah, that's what I mean, dreams. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Listen to this. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Did you know that in the early church, the early church fathers, in our baptism, every Christian would renounce Satan and all of his activities. That was, a, that was a common practice. Because they believed that by coming to Christ, you were actually renouncing another religion, whether you knew or not that you were a part of it. Now, it was much easier for them in the days of the Romans, right? Because they had a pantheon of gods that they openly worshipped. Friends, because we don't have a pantheon of gods, or we do, but we don't have named them, we think that we don't need to do that anymore. Oh no, Paul says, you died to the elemental spirits of the world, the pagan gods, when you came to Christ. But he said, so why is it now that you're, as if you're still alive to the world, you're submitting to regulations? What are these regulations? Before I list these out, they are flesh, man-made techniques to combat spiritual issues. Man-made religion. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to all the things that are perished as they are used, according to human precepts, human teachings. These have indeed, listen to me, an appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But watch this, but they are of, underline this, no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Nothing is more demonic and tempting than man-made religious salvation techniques. We must reject them wholesale. Cling to Christ who is the head. Believe the gospel. Cherish the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remind one another of the gospel. Preach the gospel. Exalt Christ. And here's why. Because if someone else offers you some list of ways that you can get out of the struggle, the attack that you are currently under in the world, and it does not have Christ at the center, it is doomed to failure. There is only one way for us to find freedom, and it's in Christ, Jesus, the Lord. There is only one way, and it's a Christocentric way. The center only holds when the center is gravity, is the gravitational pull, is the actual center, and that is Jesus Christ, the Logos, the God-man. And Paul says, don't accept the pagan gods, even when they show up to you looking like angels of light. He tells you they'll have the appearance of wisdom. They may even show up on the news, give out free cars like Oprah, you know? 
but the new, new age spiritism is bereft of Christ and therefore it is bereft of life. Now I gotta close quickly, but listen, let's talk about the dominion of Jesus. I just wanna focus real quickly on this conversation that Jesus has with the legion. When he saw Jesus, verse six, he ran from afar and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I love this line. Uh, the, the ESV says, um, what have you to do with me? The King James Version says, what have I to do with you? The point is the same. There is no fellowship or connection between Jesus Christ, the son of the most high, and these demons, and they know it. And they know that he and he alone has the authority over them. That's why they run towards him and just get it over with as soon as they know he's near. They call him Jesus, the son of the most high God. Don't you love how the people who have the best Christology are always the people with their demon-possessed? It's like the Pharisees don't know who Jesus is. Even Peter doesn't really know sometimes. They ask everybody. It's like some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet. You know who knows? The demons. And they always say it directly. The son of the most high God, the son of the most high. This is hierarchical language, by the way. I wish we had more time. This is hierarchical language. There's the gods, demons, and there's the most high God. And now I'm facing the son of the most high God. So what do I do with him? Well, notice that they do not negotiate. He begs him. He begs him, I adjure you by what? By God's mercy, by God. I'm hoping that God will be merciful on me and that you won't torment me even though I know I deserve it. The book of Matthew says, do not torment me before my time. This exact same story in the book of Matthew, do not torment me before my time. That's a direct connection with the book of Jude, the book of 2 Peter, the book of Revelation. There is a time appointed by God that he will destroy the works of darkness. Satan and all of his demons will be thrown into the outer darkness forever and ever. They know their time's coming. They know their time's short. And he says, don't do it too quickly. Let me have more time to do what? To torment more. And so what does the Bible say? The Bible says that Jesus gives him permission to go into the pigs and the pigs run off of a cliff. Don't miss the key. Jesus has to permit him to do anything. And it's not just him, it's a legion of demons. At his word, they obey. I spent so much time reading accounts of early church fathers in demon possession uh, where all of the demons, they write, are subject to us in the name. To say that the demons will do crazy evil things. I just have to do this. Just there's one where there's a in Caesarea Philippi, they have a, a sickness, or I think it, it, maybe it's not going to. It hasn't rained in a long time, like a drought, and so they they believe that they have to sacrifice a human being in order for the gods to be pleased. And one of the Christians who had just been converted there, a Gentile man, stands up and says, "No, do not kill this man," and he prays and asks God to bring the rain or to heal the sickness, and it happens. <laughs> the Lord just answers. But he doesn't stop there. It says that this man then goes to the village elders and finds the demon-possessed man that told them to kill that, and he casts out the demon. Now, guess what? That guy, all that good stuff happened to him. He ended up being killed later, martyred. Why? Because he wouldn't worship the idols. This is all, it's just like these stories like this. The common theme when you study church history, and this is where I really want to nail this home, the common theme is that the demonic always uses fear, and particularly against Christians. So if you look in some of the old Mesoamerican texts, what you'll find is that these demon gods will manifest themselves as very burly, strong, scary, so that they can get subjection. 
And this is oftentimes what happens with Christians who get afraid. Remember the sons of Sceva text, right? There's a lot of fear that comes along. But remember where we just came through in the book of Mark. Jesus is in the boat and he says, why are you afraid? The Bible is very clear that Jesus is with us, that he will be with us even to the end of the age. The authority is not ours, but it's Christ's. And our response to anything that is demonic should be simple and profound. And that is, we are united ourselves in Christ by faith. In him there is dominion and power and glory forever and ever over all creation. And where he is, there I am also. Think of all of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. The belt of truth. Well, who is the, the belt of truth? Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The breastplate of righteousness. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How are we the righteousness of God? In him. Shoes made ready by the gospel of peace. Through him to reconcile to himself all things on heaven and all things on earth. He made peace. How? By the blood of his cross. The shield of faith. Well, faith in who? Galatians chapter 4. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The helmet of salvation. Well, salvation in who? Jesus shows up to Zacchaeus' house. Today, salvation has come to this house. For you too are a son of Abraham. Well, who showed up to the house? Jesus showed up to the house. The sword of the spirit that is the word of God. Well, who's the word of God? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The authority is in Christ. And friends, you and I are bound to him by faith. All dominion, all authority is his. If you find yourself in the attack of spiritual darkness, here's what you need to be reminded of. Christ has won. Now, finally, in this story, we find a deeper meaning beyond just the surface of the demonic. I want to bring this to your attention. We should all see ourselves in this text, whether or not we've seen supernatural things recently or ever. And here's why. When Christ arrived on the shores of mankind, he found mankind just like he found the man with the legion. He found mankind living in a world of death among the tombs, naked and ashamed, groping around in the dark, crying out for deliverance, hurting ourselves, hurting each other, unrestrained, without hope, without God in the world. And at his word alone, he came to set us free from our captivity and our bondage. At his word, we're healed. At his word, we are no longer oppressed, no longer tormented by the elemental spirits of the world. And I ask you this morning, is that not every single one of our stories? Were you not like the man with the legions? Spending your time hurting yourself and others, chained in darkness until Christ shined his marvelous light? And maybe more tragically, perhaps some of us, even now, we are unable to see the the gift that Jesus Christ is because we're like the herdsmen. We've lost our pigs over the cliff. That costs us. To follow Jesus was costly. And we cannot see past the temporal sacrifice of losing our earthly vices to attain the freedom of being called the sons and daughters of God, that that freedom that's offered to us in Christ's presence. And so rather than beg to go with Jesus, we beg him to leave. Rather than being like the man who the legions were cast out of, we beg Jesus, get out of here so we can get back about our business of bondage. 
And so this morning, here's my prayer. My prayer is that we would follow the pattern of the man from whom the legions were cast out. That we would cling tightly to the Lord's garment. Just as he did. And to rejoice because unlike this man, Jesus is not getting on a boat this morning and sailing away from us, but his presence is promised and with us forever and ever. Even to the end of the age, Jesus is with us now. We are going to take of his table where we will be united with him. And he is not sailing from us, but he's here with us. And so we can say like King David, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You set a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is ours, not just King David's. It's ours in Christ. And so I pray we'd go, and just like Jesus told this man, go out into all the Decapolis and tell of the great mercy that's been shown to you by the king. Because if you're in him, he has shown you great mercy. Let me pray for us. Father, I confess to you, I wish that we had all of the time in the world to marvel at your great goodness. Would you now do what my feeble attempts cannot do? Shine forth from your word. Draw us to yourself. If there be under the sound of my voice friends or acquaintances or even strangers who are under bondage, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you blow your wind that they may be freed by the power of the gospel? not as Hollywood has sensationalized, but by the power of the name of Christ and faith in him. Help them to be freed. Help us as a body to be purged from any of the evil that the evil one has sought to sow. And help us as we take of your table to be united with you by faith and confident that we shall not fear, for you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.